In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Judge not. What a perfect text for our new vicar's first sermon. But alas, (laughs) we'll get you right to it as soon as we can. Judge not is perhaps the unbeliever's favorite verse from Scripture. Ripped out of biblical context, we hear this fired at us left and right. Dripping with irony, of course. Judge not, spoken to us by those who judge not only us, but our God. In my homily today, I want to do two things. I want to first address the contemporary use of this text, judge not. And then second... I want to move us into our Lord's own words that we can see what it is that he means when he speaks these words. As I mentioned a moment ago, these words are fired left and right at Christians. Judge not, say the very ones who judge our God and Father, who not only made them but gives them all good things. And not only this, but sends his own beloved son for their grace and everlasting life. Judge not, say these, quoting the very Jesus whom they deny, rejecting that he is God's son, rejecting that his death on the cross is necessary for their forgiveness, rejecting his resurrection and their own coming judgment. Judge not, they say, as they judge and condemn sanity, replacing it in our schools with regressivism as they teach our young ones every perversion under the sun. Judge not, as they say, as they condemn Western civilization, teaching our college students Marxism. Judge not, they say, as they judge and condemn the role that God has given to man and that God has given to woman, subverting, inverting, and perverting these things. Judge not. Which leads to the first lesson from this text. Many of you related to me that in the wake of the overturning of Roe v. Wade, how many you saw on social media purporting to be Christians who then lamented this overturning and asserted the mother's right to murder her own child. Here is the lesson. If we would be any different, then we must submit ourselves entirely to God's word. If we allow ourselves and our reason to be set over the top of God's word, then we too will pick and choose. We too will say, I like this verse, but not that. I like this verse, but only if understood as the exact opposite of what it means. And so we place ourselves in judgment over God, over his scriptures, over the truth, in pure subjectivism. If we would be different, we must submit ourselves to God and to his word whole. Heartedly. In this sense, then, it's not we ourselves who render any judgment about anything. We simply 
proclaim the judgment of God himself in his holy word. But this is necessary on an even deeper level where we're not asking are the scriptures God's word because we don't find any contradictions or because it all makes sense or because we're willing to accept every part of it. This is a deeper level. Are you God or is God God? Is his word normative or is your reason normative? Augustine has this beautiful Latin slogan, crede ut intelligas, believe in order to understand. We do not lord ourselves over the scripture seeking to understand and then, if it seems acceptable to us, believe. But rather, we submit ourselves to the scripture and believe and that the Holy Spirit grants us understanding. So here is the first lesson, that if we would not judge, we must let God's word do the judging, and we simply submit ourselves as servants of the word. But a second and equally profound lesson can be seen in a man from the 20th century, a Russian, who at the end of World War II was in fact imprisoned by Marxists for speaking against Stalin, a man by the name of Alexander Solzhenitsyn. He has this profound insight that the line which separates good and evil does not draw a line between state and state or between class and class or between political parties, but rather that line which separates good and evil is drawn down the middle of every human being, all human hearts. In this sense, we may indeed judge the words or behaviors of a person, but not the person themselves. They are at root a good creature of God, entirely corrupted by sin and by the fall, to be sure, but in their very essence and being a good creature of God. Anything less would be the Manichaean heresy. What then is the answer to this sinfulness and wretchedness we find spread all throughout humanity? Well, the answer is not, therefore, one of nation against nation, or one of class against class, or one of political party against political party. The answer can only be found in the solution God gives in his Son, whereby the Son of God removes from all mankind the penalty of our sins, and then finally, our sins themselves. Since God in Christ Jesus desires that all men would be saved and provides his son, arms outstretched on the cross and embrace of all people, and indeed making atonement for the sins of the whole world, since God saves by grace, there are going to be surprises. And that leads to the third lesson we can draw, one that comes first from the scriptures and second from C.S. Lewis. 
there are going to be surprises on Judgment Day as to who is in heaven and who is not. Our Lord himself reflects on this. Tax collectors and sinners, he says to the Pharisees and scribes, will enter before you. There will be great surprises because salvation is on the basis of grace alone, faith alone, apart from our works and for the sake of Christ alone. There will be many surprises as to who is in and maybe even some as to who is not. But there's a secondary level of surprise that C.S. Lewis points out. I'll paraphrase and use a different example than he uses, but the point is this. Man judges externally. God judges internally. If you take a man who comes into this world with the worst possible circumstances of nature and nurture, genetic inheritance, and treatment with which he grew up in the home, how does God judge a man like this when he overcomes these factors and does even the smallest good? Lewis' point is that this is a light that shines more brilliantly in the sight of God than someone who is set within life with every genetic and every family advantage, every blessing of nature and nurture, and yet can barely muster to do a little bit more. You see, in the eyes of the world, one is more than the other, but in God's eyes, It is surprisingly and precisely reversed. So too, before we level any judgments, we must take pause and realize that we do not see all that God sees. With these things in mind, and hopefully addressing some of our contemporary issues as this text is quoted out of context to us, Let's simply go now to our Lord's words themselves and meditate on what he says. The first thing we ought to note is that this section of his sermon is simply that, part of a larger sermon. And indeed, even this section begins not with the words, judge not, but with the words, be merciful as your heavenly Father is merciful. Christ does an astonishing thing. Not only does he here call us the children of God, but he calls us to emulate our Heavenly Father. How so? Judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Two negatives. We do not sit on God's throne pronouncing who goes to heaven and who goes to hell followed by two positives. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and to you it will be given. And in that very same language that David uses of his cup overflowing, Jesus sets before us an image of a grain sack filled up to the brim, pressed down, shaken so that every nook and cranny of the bag is filled up, and then filled again to the point of overflowing. 
this will be set right into your lap. Promise from Christ of the rich reward in this life and in that which is to come as we follow our Father's path of mercy, forgiveness, and freely giving. Now, from these words, we want to also, though, steer clear, not only from judgmentalism, but from a kind of abuse where we simply think like this, that, well, if God is merciful and God is infinite, then infinite mercy must be the proper way to understand this. If that were true, then a Christian judge would have no choice but to refuse to judge the pedophile and let him loose upon society. Or the Christian pastor would have no ability to judge false doctrine and would simply allow it to drag Christ's sheep into hell. Or a Christian parent would have no right to judge his child. And the child could simply cite this verse and overturn it all. No, it is not to be merciful in whatever way we see fit, but precisely to be merciful as, in the same way, identical to the way in which our Heavenly Father is merciful. Here already you see a melding of justice and mercy in the person of God, who is both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ Jesus. Now, as our Lord transitions to a parable, he states very bluntly that the problem is human blindness. And I think this blindness takes a twofold form. Blindness in respect to our own judgmentalism and blindness to the extent that we attempt to be more gracious and more merciful than God. Jesus talks about the blind leading the blind and both of them falling into a pit. And so we will be unless we do what our Lord instructs next that we recognize that we are not above our teacher to correct him in regard to judgment or mercy, but we as disciples are below our teacher and we are called to become fully trained by him. And as we are fully trained, we become like him. Disciples like teacher, children like father. Then our Lord asks, why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye? Notice the sight. But do not notice the log that is in your own eye. How can you say to your brother, brother, let me take out the speck that is in your eye when you do not see the log that is in your own eye? You hypocrite. And if all Jesus was after here was a kind of ham-fisted non-judgmentalism and pure mercy in all circumstances for all, then it would simply end here. But look at what he says next. First, take the log out of your own eye. 
and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. The mercy of God is not such that he leaves you with a log in your eye and your brother with a speck in his eye and just covers it over with an absolution. No, the mercy of God is such that he grants grace, forgiveness of sins, but then also the ability to remove that log that you may help remove the speck. Our Lord's words condemn blind judgmentalism. This idea and attitude innate within us that I am holy, you are not, let me correct you. That is not Christian. But our Lord's word also rejects blind and mistaken mercy, leaving the speck in our brother's eye, leaving the log in our own, and saying, go in peace. Christ does not come to condemn That would be a rejection of mercy. Nor does he come to save by mere fiat, by mere proclamation of the forgiveness of sins. That would be to deny justice. But rather, in the cross of Jesus Christ, righteousness, justice, and peace, forgiveness, kiss, That is the twofold offense of the cross in our culture and the twofold offense of a crucifix. That when you would come in, you would be confronted in the first place with your own sins. This way, and only in this way, and in no other way, can you and I be forgiven. For justice must be done. But the second reflection, symmetrically offensive, is that it is precisely Christ on that cross and not you. You cannot earn your way into God's grace or improve your way into his mercy. It is freely given to you as a gift in and through his Son. Our God upholds both justice and mercy For he is just and the justifier of you, the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. Therefore, you who have been saved by the teacher have been saved that you might become like him. You who have been saved by the Father have been saved that you might become like him. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.